Exodus chapter three. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that no matter where we are, your word is eternal. It's your spirit that binds us together. The truth is this may be a better picture of the church, Lord, because we are ultimately united by you and in you, Lord, no matter where we are. But Lord, we're, we're, we're getting to be your church right now um, universally in some way, Lord, as we gather together. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for a God that has come down and revealed himself to us, that you have not left it up to us and our imagination, Lord, to guess what you are like, but Lord, you have condescended and you've come down and you've come down because of our cries. You've come down because of our sin. You've come down to save and to deliver us. And so even as we look in Exodus 3, may we, may we, may we be reminded over and over again of you, Jesus, and what you have done for us. In your great name we pray, amen. And so last week we finished up the book of Genesis and as we said, the, the theme of the book of Genesis is, is beginnings. That's what the word Genesis means. It means beginnings. And so throughout Genesis, you have the beginnings. You have the beginnings of creation. You have the beginnings of man. You have the beginnings of sin in Genesis 3. You also have the beginnings of God's plan of redemption. We even see that in Genesis 3.16 when he says to the, to the serpent, the seed of the woman is going to crush you, gonna crush your head, but you will strike, you will bite, you will bruise his heel. And so we even see the beginnings of a redeemer coming, bringing and fulfilling this plan of redemption. We see the beginning of a covenant of redemption by faith in God as it is extended to Abraham. We see God's covenant of a, of a people and in a, of a place under God's blessing and under God's rule that God is going to, to take and make a nation and he's gonna bless this nation, many nations even, and that through them will become uh, blessings to the, to, the, uh, to the ends of the earth. We see, as we saw um, last week, we saw there's a type of redeemer in Joseph, the one who will suffer unjustly. And yet through his suffering, he will make a way for his family. He will bring provision, salvation, if you will, physical salvation. Genesis closes out. Exodus begins with a partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant taking place and that we have people, they're being multiplied. Exodus 1-7 opens up and it says this, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The Genesis closes out and Exodus begins with the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, whose name has been changed to Israel. They are down in Egypt and God is faithful to his promise and they are multiplying. There's now many of them, maybe, maybe thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe million, a million people. We don't know exactly, but we know this, that they have threatened the Pharaoh. They've threatened him. And so Genesis, if the theme of Genesis is beginnings, then the theme of Exodus is this, it's redemption. So we break over into a new book, we have a, a new theme and the theme is redemption, it's salvation. It's actually the same as the entirety of the Bible from Genesis chapter three, all the way to Revelation 21. It's this same theme that God saves, God redeems his people. It's important because in order to be redeemed, in order to be saved, you must be redeemed from something and then be redeemed to something. You must be redeemed and delivered and saved from something 
in order to be saved to something. And remember, as we're working through the storyline of the Bible, we're looking for patterns in the Bible. We're saying, okay, we see this in the Old Testament. Where do we see it again? And when those patterns emerge, we, we try to let you know, here's a pattern that we see. We discussed the pattern of redemption um, in the story of Noah. And very similar to the pattern of redemption, we see a, a, a new pattern um, emerging. It is, it is the pattern uh, of redemption, but it's emerging something like this, that Egypt isn't just a, a geographical place, although it is, but G G Egypt also, it typifies or signifies or represents a, a spiritual position, a spiritual condition of the people of God. The scripture says that the people of God are down into Egypt because what Egypt represents is Egypt represents separation from God. 400 years have transpired since Genesis has closed out and Exodus has begun. And over that course of that 400 years, it doesn't appear that God has, has appeared to his people. It doesn't appear that God has done anything major. Now, certainly there, are, there has been God's common grace has been in place. We see that the sun has continued to, to rise and to set and the, the waters and people have been able to eat and they prospered and they built and God's people have multiplied. Like no doubt God is blessing, but God hasn't shown up in any sort of special way, at least that we've been revealed in scripture. No special revelation. God hasn't come to anyone like he came to Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. It appears that God has had almost 400 years of silence. Not only are they down in Egypt, they're multiplying, but they're not prospering. They're multiplying like crazy, but they are, have been enslaved. They're multiplying, procreating, as a fulfillment to the Abrahamic covenant, the creation mandate even to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. They're doing that. And yet Pharaoh is threatened by the blessing of God. So he has enslaved the Israelites, the descendants of Israel. He's enslaved them. And so here is the pattern. The pattern is the two movements. It's a movement of exile and a movement of exodus. It's going down into exile and it's coming up again unto, unto exodus. It's exiled we are being saved from and the, what we are being exiled into is what we're being saved from. And then there is the exodus, what we are being saved to. And Egypt represents, as I said, this state of exile, a state of separation, of, uh, of judgment, a separation from God. It will take the, the form in other names throughout the Bible. It will be, uh, as I said, here in, in throughout um, Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it is Egypt, but then it will switch over and it will be Babylon. Israel be exiled into Babylon. We can even see it in Genesis whenever they're exiled east of Eden and outside of the garden, we saw that as well. It will also take place in, with, uh, with other names as well. The psalmist will call it Sheol. In the New Testament, it is just called the world. The church, we are, as the church, we are called out. We are saved from, from the world, redeemed from the world. It is the grave. It is ultimately hell. Ultimately, a place of eternal separation, judgment, condemnation from the blessing of God. The book of Exodus starts here because in Egypt, 
because God is making a declaration that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is saying that my people are in sin. They're under my judgment. They're enslaved here, but God will come and he will, he will bring them out. The exodus will come out. He will deliver them. There's gonna be a path of redemption. A path of deliverance is gonna come. A salvation is gonna come and he's going to take them to a place, saving them from Egypt and taking them to the promised land. A land, he says, flowing with milk and honey, but not only is it a land where they'll be free, not only is it a land where they will prosper, but ultimately it will be a place where God will meet with his people again. It's a place where God will dwell with them. And we'll see that as he takes them through the wilderness, as he takes them to Zion even, or he takes them to Mount Sinai. And there he will give them the tabernacle. And it's going to be the meeting place where they can come and where God will dwell among them. Eventually it will be typified in the city of Jerusalem, be typified in the, in the temple where God dwells. In the Psalms, they calls it the, the mountain of God, the hill of the Lord. It's called Zion. It's the presence of God. It's a right relationship with God. It is for us as a church that we're called out of the world. And what are we called to? Well, we're called to Christ. We're in Christ. That's the picture. Ultimately, it will be heaven, a place of eternal peace and fellowship with God. This is what Exodus is about. It's about the deliverance and redemption and salvation of God's people from a separated state from God. We're being saved from separation from God, from isolation from God, from silence from God, and we're being saved to God. And how is this happening? How is this being accomplished? Well, simply put, it's being accomplished through this, that God saves his people. That's the theme of the Bible. That's the theme of Exodus. That's the theme from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 21. God saves his people. It is being accomplished by God coming down, God descending, God calling, God working, God flexing his might, God leading his people out. And so what we have in Exodus 3 is we have a, a reappearing of the main character of the Bible. The main character in the book of Exodus isn't Moses. Moses would get the best supporting actor nomination and even award, but the lead character, the lead actor is God. And that's what we see in Exodus 3 is God shows up. Yes, Moses is God's prophet. Yes, Moses is God's man, but the main character is God. God has come down. Now in Exodus 3, God has already preserved Moses' life. He's already called Moses. Moses has already left Egypt. He's become a shepherd. He's watching over his father-in-law's flocks and uh, a man by the name of Jethro. And God shows up and God redeem. And as God shows up, God comes to redeem his people. And when God comes to redeem his people, he does it through his revelation of himself. And that is what's happening here. God has come down and he appears to Moses in a burning bush. And what we see here in Exodus 3 in Moses' encounter in, with a burning bush is what we see is we see four truths, four truths of the character and the nature of God. What is God like? Well, listen, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to fill in the blank with your imagination. You don't have to guess. You don't have to invent things. There is one God and God has revealed himself in the pages of scripture 
God has revealed himself as he's come down and as, he, and, and as he's appeared to us. He's revealed himself ultimately in the person and the work of Christ. But the same God appearing here, the same God that is Jesus. And this is so important even for us that how we understand the person and the character of God, it affects every aspect of our lives. You tell me what you think about God and I'll tell you what you think about a hundred other things in your life and in this world, even what's happening now, even what's happening with a coronavirus, even in this world that we live in, it, it ultimately flows up to what we think about God. We say it often here at the Point Community Church where we make this quote often that A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us that what enters into your mind when you think about God, that is so important. And again, we don't have to guess at that. That God has come down and God has revealed it to us. He's shown it. He's preserved it in his scriptures. And we see it here as God comes into a burning bush. Four truths about God, his nature and his character that are being revealed to Moses as God reintroduces himself to his people. Number one, that God is holy. We see that in verse number five. Then he said, do not, this is the voice coming from the burning bush. This is God who is speaking. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet for the place on which you stand is holy ground. We see that God is holy. That holiness of God refers to the fact that God is separate, that God is different, that God is utterly unique. He's otherly from us. God is not like us. We were, yes, we were made in his image, but we need to be careful that we don't um, make the mistake of, of giving God, um, of doing the same to God, creating God in our image. Yes, we have been created in God's image, but let's don't do the, the favor of making God in our image. He is not, he is different. He is far above us. He is utterly unique. And God's holiness is like a power radiating from him. So that the very place where God's presence comes and rests, then that place is made holy. That God's presence is so holy, it's so utterly. That God's presence is so good that, it's, that it becomes dangerous. That's why he says that word of warning that comes to, to Moses. Moses, stop what you're doing. Take off your shoes. Don't come any closer here because where God's presence is, it becomes dangerous. Not dangerous because God is so bad, but dangerous because just the opposite, because God is so good. That's what comes to Moses. Do not come near. Do not get too close. In fact, the scripture says that Moses is filled with fear as he comes closer to the burning bush. It is a declaration that God is holy and Moses is not. That holiness is the chief attribute of God. And it's also the chief problem of man. That God is holy and we are not. That is the problem throughout scripture. That God is morally perfect and morally pure and you and I, we are not. In fact, God is so pure and we are so impure that whenever a human comes into his presence of God, because of our impure natural state, we, we die. We'll see that as we as the script storyline of the Bible unfolds, as we get into the temple, we'll see that. We'll see that with the Ark of the Covenant. We'll see that again and again. That holiness is God's moral perfection. That's what separates him from everything else. 
He is morally perfect and morally pure. And you and I and the children of Israel and even Moses, we are not. First, God is holy. Second, God is faithful. And what I mean by faithful is this, that he keeps his promises. Look at verse number six. And he said, I am the, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That God reveals himself here to Moses in covenant relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, with the patriarchs, with Moses' ancestors. And he's saying that I made a covenant with them. I made a promise with them. And the promise was a relationship with them. I would be their God. They would be my people. And also I had promised to them to bless them. And what I'm doing here, me coming, what I'm about to do as I release the children of Israel, deliver them, I'm doing based upon a promise I made to Abraham. I reconfirmed it to Isaac. I reconfirmed it to Jacob. The promise was for descendants and people and land and a blessing. And even though 400 years have transpired, but I have not forgotten my promise. And I am faithful to do all that I have promised. Now, listen to me. Some people call the Bible a book of promise, and it it is a book of promise. There are a great number of blood-bought promises here found in the Bible, in the pages of the Bible. But it's important that we understand who the promises are made to, who the promises are for. Like it would be an an error to treat the Bible as a giant fortune cookie that we crack open and we dig around and we find a, a promise for us to wave about and to think that somehow that belongs to us or that is ours. Even this week, I posted on my Facebook page, a promise of God that I've been finding great comfort in this week. The promise that we should not be fearful But the truth is we gotta understand who that promise is directed to. It's directed to the people of God. Here as God comes and he reconfirms his promises, his promises are to the covenant people of God. And who are the covenant of people of God today? Well, the new covenant has been extended to us through Christ. Those that are in Christ, we are the covenant people of God, that God is, yes, he is faithful to keep his promises, but his promises are always made to his people, those who are in covenant relationship with him. Those of us that extends to those of us today that are in Christ, that our faith in the finished work of Jesus, through that we've been adopted in as the chosen people of God by faith in Christ. If you're not living in Christ and for Christ, if you've yet to receive Christ and you're, the, the whole of your life isn't to live for the glory of Christ, you've yet to be adopted into the family of Christ, if you are living outside of Christ, pursuing the things of the world and not the things of Christ, then you have no claim on the promises of God. And even this week, as I said, that fear not for God is with you, that if you are living outside of God's covenant, if you're living outside of Christ, then you should be fearful. God is not for you. His for you is pictured on the cross as he beckons you to come, but you have no claim on the promises of God that only those of us who are in covenant relationship with God have claim to the promises of God. First, that God is holy. Second, that God is faithful. Third, truth about God's nature and his character that we find in Exodus 3 is this, and this is a great one, that God is compassionate. Even as Pastor Tony preached last week and talked about that God is both good and he's great, that he is 
great. That is his holiness. But that God is good. And we see this in this text here that God is compassionate that God is intimately aware of the sufferings and the affliction of his people. Look at what he says. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I can think of no better truth than that truth, that God sees the affliction of his people, that God sees his people suffering in a world of sin that God hears our cries, that the sovereignty of God does not negate the compassion of God. Yes, God is great, but God is also good. That God sees the suffering of his people, but that does not mean that he delights in the suffering of his people. He hears our cries and he knows our needs that the Bible is filled with the cries of God's people. There are numerous Psalms called the Psalms of Lament where God's people are lamenting. They're lamenting their, their own sin. They're lamenting their suffering. They're lamenting the, the state in which they live in. There's an entire book called the Book of Lamentations. And the truth is, is for those of us this morning that find ourselves in places of lament, that find ourselves in places of longing, that you and I, we join in with the people of God throughout the centuries who cry out to God. And yet we cry out to a God who is compassionate and caring and loving, that we feel the longing of, of, as the people of God for God's deliverance. We feel that, we feel that even today. And that's real Christianity. Real Christianity isn't, pretend everything is okay and sing zippity doo every day. Real Christianity is that suffering comes to us. And yet in the midst of our suffering, we know that God draws near. He draws near to the brokenhearted. The suffering in this world is real. That the things, even as we see them today, that they are not the way that they should be, nor are they the way that they will forever be. And it creates within us a longing, a longing for redemption and a longing for deliverance which brings us to the fourth point. The fourth truth about God that we find here is that God brings deliverance. The prayers of God's people, they elicit a response from God. The prayers and the cries of God's people for deliverance, they precede the work of God. The God who sees is also the God who saves. Look at verse number eight. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Woo, that's good. I mean, that is good. That God has come down. That God is flexing his might. God is flexing his muscle. God is going to do this in such a way that only he gets credit. I have come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite, the Canaanite, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have seen there the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. That this is God's purpose for coming down. This is God's purpose for showing up to Moses in a burning bush, that this is God's intervention. He has come to deliver them from the bondage in Egypt and to take them, to save them from something 
and to take them to something, to a good land, a broad land, the promised land. They're being saved from affliction and bondage and suffering, and they're being saved to a land flowing with milk and honey. This mission of deliverance for the people of God, as Moses hears it, it sounds like a suicide mission. Hold on a minute, wait a minute, God. You want me to go tell Pharaoh what? You want me to go say, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, that group of people that have been providing all of this free labor for you for the last 400 years that have been building all this stuff for you, that same people, I want you just to let them go, set them free so that they can go and serve and worship their God. There is absolutely no way. And Moses knows that in order to go on this mission, he needs to be sent. And so Moses asks, the voice coming from the burning bush that is God, a theophany, it's God in the burning bush. He asked them, when I go to Pharaoh, who should I say has sent me? He's asking for God's name. In verse number 14, God responds to that. And God said to Moses, look at, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, there are massive, this is a massive moment in the Old Testament. A massive moment when God reveals his covenantal name to Moses to give it to him. He's, he's revealing his identity. He's revealing even his character and his nature here as he gives Moses his name. The name he gives Moses is the name Yahweh. It's a name based upon the verb to be. God is the I am, the one who is. That is what he's saying. This name is a reference to God's self-existence. God is. Even though we said Genesis was the book of beginnings, but it is not the book of the beginning of God that God has pre-existed and God is self-existent. God is. He has no origin outside of himself like we do. This name is in reference to God's self-sufficiency which means he has no need outside of himself like we do. We need air, we need food, we need water, we need rest. God needs nothing. He's completely self-sufficient. This is a name, is in reference to the fact that God is eternal. He's always been, always is, and always will be. That God is immutable, which means he never changes and he never fluctuates like we do. God is the I am. And this will become the most prevalent name of God throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It will be used some 6,000 times in the Bible. By way of comparison, that's three times as many as the occurrences as the more common name for God, which is Elohim in Hebrew. That what God is saying here is that I am, I am holy. In fact, this name will be considered so holy, even of itself, that the writers and the scribes in the Old Testament, they'll remove all of the vowels from Yahweh and it will just be capital Y-H-W-H in, your, in a Hebrew Bible. In our English Bibles, it will be replaced by capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord or the Lord. It is a declaration God is making here that I am the Lord. I am God, I am over everything. And the point is that what we just will read is that becomes the steadfast confession throughout the Old Testament. That is the steadfast confession throughout the Old Testament that God is the Lord, God is self-existent, self-sufficient, everlasting, never changing, all powerful one. And don't forget this context. 
This is the God who saves his people. He liberates them from slavery. He adopts them as his own. He provides all that they need. God is the Lord and he is the I am. We got to put pause on the Old Testament for just a second here. Because this is one of those places where we can't just stay in the Old Testament. Remember every story in scripture, it whispers Jesus's name, as Sally Lloyd-Jones said, that every story in scripture is ultimately pointing to Jesus. That the whole story in the Old Testament is preparing us for the day when one will come in a world of sin and suffering. After another 400 years of silence, the break between the Old Testament and the New Testament is marked by 400 years of silence, 400 years where there's not a prophet and now and then again, God will come down. Only this time, God will not come down in a burning bush, but God will come down as a baby in a manger. The baby will become a man and when his time has come, he will begin preaching and teaching and he will preach and he will say this, that I have come to bring liberty to the captives. I've come to liberate men and women from the slavery of sin. I've come to provide eternal life and salvation for all who will trust in me. That the gospel of John, it will record that on seven occasions that Jesus will say, I am. Jesus will let them know who he is by saying this very same name that was given to Moses in the burning bush. He will say, I am, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world and I am the good shepherd and I am the door and I am the resurrection and the life that I am the way, the truth and life. I am, I am, I am, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, your God. Jesus will live as a testimony to the character and the nature of God, that Jesus is holy and Jesus is faithful and Jesus is compassionate and Jesus is the one who comes to deliver his people, that the holiness of God and the compassion of God, especially, they will come together in the person and the work of Christ. That throughout the gospels, especially in the gospel of Luke, it will say that Jesus being filled with compassion and then Jesus will do something. Jesus will stretch out his hand. Jesus will heal and Jesus will raise the dead. That in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, the theme of the book of Leviticus is the theme of holiness. It is a, a book that is telling us about people who are ceremonial, unclean, unholy. And it's telling us how to become, how they can become holy and how they can become clean. The book of Exodus will tell us that things like dead animals and certain people, like sick people, like dead people, even women at certain times, that they will be ceremonial unclean. And what the book of Leviticus will tell us that if you touch those people in their impure state, that their impurity would be transferred to you. Right? We're kind of living in a time like that where people are afraid to go out and afraid to touch and afraid to breathe in viruses. And in the same way, he's saying that people are ceremonial, unpure and unholy and unclean. And if you touch them during those times and that their impurity would be transferred to you and then you must go through certain rituals in order to be made clean again. And Jesus comes. Jesus comes as the perfect, pure one, the holy one of God. And Jesus sees people in their impurity, sick people and lepers and a woman with an issue of blood and even a dead little girl. And Jesus reaches out and Jesus touches them, only their impurity isn't transferred to Jesus. The opposite occurs. Jesus's purity, Jesus's holiness is transferred to them. 
as a leper is made whole, as sick people are healed, as a dead person is raised again, that Jesus is the one who has the power, that this is the good news. This is the greatest news that all have sinned against God, that we are all separate from God in our sin. When we, des- when we die, we deserve eternally to be eternally separated from God. We are all down into Egypt, down into the abyss, down into Sheol. That's where we all reside and we all live. But God has not left us alone in this state. That God has come to us in the person of Jesus. That Jesus lived a life of no sin. Jesus died on a cross for our sin. And Jesus has risen from the dead in victory over sin so that everyone who trusts in Jesus as Lord will be saved from their sin. That Christ's compassion and our faith, they meet, they touch Christ. And Christ's righteousness and his holiness and his purity, by faith it is transferred to us when we cry out to him. And our impurity and our sin Our disease and our sickness, our unholiness is transferred to Christ on the cross where he died for our sin. And today, right where you're sitting, no matter where that may be, you could be liberated from the penalty and the power of sin. You can join in the exodus, the exodus that Christ is leading out of sin, out of slavery, out of this world and to himself to a renewed relationship with him, to Zion and ultimately to heaven where you will see Jesus face to face, that God can supernaturally right now, he can save you from all of your sin against him and give you new life in a relationship with him, a new life that will last forever. And if Christ has that kind of power to overcome our greatest problem, which is our unholiness, then what's the coronavirus to a God like that? Let's pray. Jesus, we are reminded as you've come down of who you are, that you are holy, you are compassionate, you are faithful. Jesus, you came as you were promised all the way back in Genesis chapter three, the promise of a redeemer that will come and Jesus, you have come. You've given your life as a ransom for many to set us free from the slavery of our sin. May we be reminded of that even today. And we be reminded that you came to deliver sinners like us, that you came because you promised God would save his people from their sin. And Christ, you've come and you've done that. You are the I am, you are the Lord. And it's our privilege and our, our, our joy to get to claim that, to declare that, that you are Lord. You're the Lord over all. You're the King of kings and Lord of lords. You're sovereign over everything, including this dreaded disease, including this time that it feels so uncertain. May we find our rest. May our hearts find peace and rest in you in this time, Lord. Lord, I pray that we spend the rest of this week just with renewed assurance in a great and good and glorious King who's come down, who's among us, who's promised his covenant people that you would never leave us nor forsake us. And we feel that and we believe that. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.